With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio.
Skies broadcasting live to billions of people. Camels on the streets tracking who we meet and call this liberty.
what you need to do to safeguard the freedoms and liberties. <clears throat> Number one, you should, as Americans as living in this country, you should know that you have obligations, voting and uh, and making sure that you don't stand idly by while things go wrong. And you should know, you should know also from from me uh, pounding it into folks now and how many, I don't know how many shows we've done now. We've done, uh, what, uh, 50-something shows a year for uh, for five years. And, uh, and I don't think I've let a single episode go by that I haven't harked on this. So, so if you're a regular listener to the show, then you you know that I've uh, I've been telling folks every week the the things that they need to do in order to make sure that this country doesn't go through or finish a transformation and become like some other country. Because right now we're not. We're not like any other country on the face of the earth. And thank God for that. But we could. We could become that way if we continue to sleep, if we can continue to uh, to to function as somnobulists and, and just sleepwalk through our lives. All right? <clears throat> I'm going to jump off my, 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 my post and uh, get on with the show and tell you that tonight we're going to be talking about, we're going to continue to talk about the events that led up to, and then also mainly today uh, we're going to talk about the events of April 19th, 1775, all right, because we're coming up on the the April 19th uh, Big Bash weekend that we do, that the Appleseed Project does every year, and uh, this year we're having over 100 shoots coast-to-coast, border-to-border, uh, in order to honor the folks who stood together in ranks on April 19th, 1775, and... Uh, the way that you honor someone is to remember them. And that's what we're going to be doing this coming weekend. We're going to be holding shoots across the nation, and we're going to be talking about the folks that were at uh, Lexington, Concord, and uh, along Battle Road back to Boston. We're going to talk about them. We're going to honor them by remembering them. There will also be a... uh, a simultaneous volley across the United States. We'll sync up everybody's uh, uh, time differences. We'll run it at the same time, make sure that that everybody is shooting at the same time. And uh, I imagine with 100 events, uh, and if we average, say, uh, 30 people at an event, then we'll have uh, 30,000 rounds fired... uh, within just a few seconds across the United States. Which is no small thing. Nobody else has ever done what we're doing. Nobody else has ever held uh really nobody even holds any much of an event at all. You've got the the Sons of the American Revolution and Daughters of the American Revolution uh that that try and keep the state active. Uh you have other groups, especially in New England, uh the New England area, because this is for them, this is a pretty uh a pretty hardcore uh, holiday, 
I say holidays and weekends. It's a pretty hardcore uh, date for folks to remember. Uh, but mostly, if you ask folks what does April 19th mean, even if you push it all the way up to, to, to the complete clue of April 19th, 1775, a lot of folks aren't going to know what that means. They don't know what that date is, has, has any significance. Uh, my daughters know because because I've told them because they've been they've been with me at uh, the events quite a few times and uh, my daughter Caroline she is uh, really good at yelling out uh, lay down your weapons and disarm lay down your weapons damn you you rebels because she ended up with the part of playing uh, the part of uh, Major Pitcairn in our American Revolutionary War play. So she knows the dates, but most Americans don't. Now, granted, that was 235 years ago, and uh, plus, 235 years plus now. I think I've been seeing 235 years for a few years now. Uh, 235 years plus. And, uh, and it's not... Uh, it's not the same as the 4th of July, which we keep current every year. Uh, it's not the same as uh, December 7th, uh, 1941, uh, in people's minds. It's not the same. But how can you not know the significance of the day that your country Hello, caller. Who am I speaking with tonight? This is Mark. I, my my phone went dead. I ain't hearing you guys. I so I pushed okay. one. Okay, was on there. Scott got bumped off, and now he's just come back on. So, okay, why don't you go ahead and speak your piece. Hey, you you got access to that newspaper called USA Today? You know which one I'm talking about? I do, but I don't read the paper. Uh, you gotta, yes. You had to spend a dollar and buy that paper just to look at the front part of it there, about page six or eight. See the look on Obama's face when he got found out that his gun agenda didn't go the way he wanted it. <laughs> that that, that picture's worth a dollar. Uh, <laughs> I saw that without having to get on the All right. Did Sam tell you guys that... Uh, that we almost didn't make it on the show because Blog Talk is once again experiencing a lot of difficulties tonight. And uh, they had actually sent out a message. We were racing to the line to try and get the, the show loaded. And uh, they said that uh, they actually advised us not to run the show tonight. They said to try and reschedule, but we went ahead and, and ran it anyway. But But there may be... Uh, some difficulties throughout the night, so just be aware that uh, okay. that if the if the the phones get dropped or if you guys get dropped out of uh, uh, off the show or something, just just log back in. Uh, okay, so 
I didn't catch who had called in, and my screen isn't showing me. It's not showing that anybody's called in. So who is this? Who do we have with us, Sam? Good You guys still on? Hello? Yeah, yeah. Who is this? Oh, this is Mark. I just, I got dropped there, so I just pushed one to see if I got hooked back up, and I did. I, I ain't got nothing to say. I'm just listening. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right, well, uh, well, you guys are welcome to call in tonight, you know, despite any of the, uh, any of the phone problems or anything else that we're having. You guys are are welcome to call in. We we certainly encourage that every week. Uh we keep the we keep the lines open for you guys to call in. The call in number is uh, 347-308-8790. Because we'd like for you guys to call in and uh add your uh comments or questions to the show. And we'd also like to make sure that that if you call in and you and you've been to an apple seed or you're an apple seed instructor or a shoot boss or anything else, we'd like to make sure that you let the folks know that are in your local cruise or national cruise, wherever, that uh that you appreciate the stuff that they're doing. So Mark, you got uh you got anybody in your local crew that you want to thank? No, I'm doing all right. Yeah. We're fine up here. Yeah, I just I just checking in. Yeah. All right. Well, if anybody would like to call in, uh, the number is 347-308-8790. And uh, you guys are are welcome to call in and uh, let your local crews know how much you appreciate them because uh, uh, they probably don't get a whole lot of uh, whole lot of other. Uh, thanks. I mean the uh, the program, the Appleseed Project, is a great program. It's a, it's absolutely fantastic. It's the best, absolute best rifle marksmanship program in the nation, and it's all volunteer. Everybody who works the program is a volunteer. Nobody's getting paid. Everybody's doing this job uh, because they feel it's important to them. But we're also really good at uh, at pushing our folks hard, and a lot of times we're not so great at uh, telling them how much we appreciate them, because the Appleseed Project is an organization that has a mission. I'm not going to tell you it's like the Army or anything like that, because it's not, but but it is in the fact that it has a mission to do. That means we expect our folks to do... to to maintain a pretty high level of involvement and a pretty high level of participation. And uh, just like in the Army where where you can fight through the, the whole uh, eight years of the war and not get a medal, but you just you fought for eight long years and you took uh, the same hardships as everybody else and not get a medal. It's the same way with the Appleseed Project. You may be working your butt off, uh, you know, but all month long, every month for the last few years, and you may not be getting some, somebody may not be telling you thanks. But I want to let you know right now that I'm telling you thanks. All right, because that's the only that's the only way that we make it is for is through the 
the hard work and the dedication of our volunteers. And those are the guys that uh, are out there, wherever they are locally, uh, out there beating the bushes, uh, promoting the program, learning their craft and their trades, and then teaching it to the folks that show up on weekends. And that means uh, finding a range and getting the range set up and and making sure they have all their gear set up. And I know that uh, most Appleseed shoot bosses have invested hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in their gear so that they can teach uh, the uh, the program. And, and none of that is the, the program itself doesn't pay for any of that. It's all the volunteers paying for almost all of their own stuff uh, on their own dime. So i got to tell you, I'm really proud at, uh, at the fact that I'm working with such a great group of guys uh, all across the nation. Hundreds of them that I've met, but thousands more that I haven't met, at least not met in person. I may have, uh, I may have spoken to them online or in, a, uh, in an email or something like that, but they're out there. And they're out there working every month. And uh, the majority of them are going to be running an event this weekend. Because on the April 19th weekends every year, we pull out all the stops. We try and uh, call in all the tribes. And we try and run events uh, at every location that we have. And it takes almost every member that we have to try and do this. So everybody's going to be working this coming weekend, at least everybody that I know. And uh, I want to thank them for that. Mark, are you still on the line? Yes, sir. Where are you, are you guys having an event this weekend? Yeah, if there'd be one around, I'd go. Yeah, I'm up here in Wyoming. Yep, Casper. Uh, you know what? I, I thought that's who you were, but I didn't get any information. I didn't get your area code, so I had no way of knowing where you were. For some reason, I was yeah. thinking you were part of the uh, no, the New England crew, like in Maine or something, for some reason. No, I've just been calling in for a couple of years and work here and there and all around, and yeah, yeah, I've been to I've been well, to. Well, I talked to you last week about that. We're gonna try and get one together. Sure. When we do, when we get the event, when I get another event set up there, I'm gonna call you. I got your number right here in front of me now. I'm gonna call you, and and you're gonna come to the event, right? You betcha. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we've got uh, tonight. What I'd like to do is I want to keep the uh, I want to keep the show open for people that are going to call in. If anybody wants to call in, and if there's any last minute stuff that needs to be talked about, then uh, we'd be glad to have that done. If we if anybody wants to talk about what they're going to do. Uh, this coming weekend at their events, and we'd like for, them to, like for them to call in so we can hear about that. <clears throat> and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, I'm going to continue to talk to you about the events of April 19th, 1775. All right, and uh, we're going to start off first off. Uh, First off, I'm going to Sam. Can you and uh, can you and Mark talk for just a second? 
and I'm going to type something, and and, uh, and I'm going to stop talking. Mark, you still there? Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. Wait, I just about got it.
for a pretty good price, and they were actually quite rotten provisions. So they had to wait and wait and wait for the provisions to be sent to them from the ships. Once the provisions got there, the guys got them. They said, this stuff is it's, it's horrible. It's rotten. It's no good. And they ended up throwing it away. And most of the guys had brought uh, food with them anyway, some kind of rations. I'm not going to say they brought enough for their mission, but they brought some kind of rations. All right, that caused them uh, to lose over two hours of time, okay? Now, after going a few miles, we took three or four people who were going off to give intelligence. That's the other thing that they were doing. They were, every time they came upon somebody, an individual traveler or groups, uh, they detained them to keep them from uh, from going out and and giving the information that they were out upon the road uh, to any of the, the rest of the colonists, they would detain them. About five miles on this side of a town called Lexington, which lay in our road, we heard that there were some hundreds of people collected together intending to oppose us and stop our going on. At 5 o'clock, we arrived there and saw a number of people, I believe between two and 300, formed in a common in the middle of the town. We still continue advancing, keeping prepared against an attack, though without intending to attack them. But on our coming near them, they fired one or two shots, upon which our men, without any orders, rushed in upon them, fired, and put them to flight. Several of them were killed. We could not tell how many because they were got behind walls and into woods. When a man of the 10th Light Infantry wounded, nobody else hurt. We then formed on the commons, but with some difficulty. The men were so wild they could hear no orders. We waited a considerable time there and at length proceeded on our own way to Concord, which we then learned was our destination in order to destroy a magazine of stores collected there. We met with no interruptions until within a mile or two of the town where the country people had occupied a hill which commanded the road. The light infantry were ordered away to the right and ascended the hill in one line, upon which the Yankees quitted it without firing, which they did likewise for one or two more successfully successively. They then crossed the river beyond the town, and we marched into the town after taking a taking possession of a hill with a liberty pole on it and a flag flying, which was cut down. The Yankees had the hill, but left it to us. We expected they would have made a stand there, but they did not choose it. <clears throat> now, I'm not sure from his description, if he's talking about the Minutemen that the town had sent out uh, or if he is talking about the 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 folks who had gathered uh, on uh, if the folks who had gathered on the training uh, the training hill there, I suppose it must be the uh, the training hill folks because by the time they entered the town, the all of the militia in the town had already left and had already been collected onto the uh, onto the training hill. <clears throat> the grenadiers, while the grenadiers remained in the town, destroying three pieces of cannon 
several gun carriages, and about 100 bar- barrels of flour with harnesses and other things. The light companies were detached beyond the river to examine some houses for more stores. One of these companies was left at the bridge, another on a hill a quarter of a mile from that. The other three went for two or three miles to seek some cannons, which had been there but had been taken away that morning. Okay, these are the companies that were sent. Uh, uh, that were sent out of town. They were sent out of town uh, to uh, to try and find the rest of the stores that they had been told were uh, were stored away. <laughs> now remember that the the townspeople there at Concord had been they had already been warned that the British regulars were coming. Okay, they already they had already been warned that that they were going to be coming and searching for the the goods and supplies and they had already moved them. And uh, and so there was not a whole lot of supplies for them to find anywhere. Now they did uh, get the cannon that had been that had been buried in the uh, uh, in the pub area, but there was nothing else they could find. They said they found a hundred uh, uh, sacks of flour, uh, some harness material, and I believe that there was a, a large stack of of uh, like spoons and plates that they found, stuff like that. But there was nothing else that uh, that they found because it had already been moved. So the the troops. Hold on, just a second here. There we go. The troops had. Uh, had not much to do there. Now, they did, if you're talking about it here, they did start a fire to burn the stuff there. Uh, During this time, the people were gathering together in great numbers and taking advantage of our scattered disposition. It seemed as if they were going to cut off our communication with the bridge, upon which the two companies joined and went to the bridge to support that company. The three companies drew up in the road the far side of the bridge, and the rebels on the hill above, covered by a wall. In that situation, they remained a long time, very near an hour. Okay. Uh, The three companies expecting to be attacked by the rebels, who were about 1,000 strong. Captain Lowry, who commanded these three companies, sent to Colonel Smith, begging he would send more troops to the assistance and informing him of his situation. The colonel ordered two or three companies, but put himself at their head, by which means stopped them from being time enough. For being a very fat, heavy man, he would not have reached the bridge in half an hour, though it was not half a mile to it. All right, this is uh, obviously, they've got grief with uh, Colonel Smith saying that he was taking his time. In the meantime, the rebels marched into the road and were coming down upon us, when Captain Laurie made his men retire to this side of the bridge, which 
by the by, he ought to have done it first, and then he would not have had, then he would have had time to make a good disposition. But at this time, he had not. For the rebels were got so near him that his people were obliged to form the best way they could. As soon as they were over the bridge, the three companies got one behind the other, so that only the front one could fire. And when we talk about this, when we're talking about the the companies, the British regulars forming up, remember they had the companies across the bridge, and this officer, this Lieutenant Barker, is saying, look, they, they should have done this well before this, because if they would have, then they would have had time to uh, to get their men into some type of formation that would have been a good combat formation that they could have fired on. But they, since they didn't have time, they were all shoved together, three companies shoved together in a narrow uh, formation. They were held that way because of the the terrain there. You've got the road coming right after you cross the bridge. You've got the road which is down in a depression, and then it has walls on each side of it, pretty high walls, because you're adding the depression to the walls. So the three companies were stuck there, facing toward the colonists, toward the militia. And that means that if you've got 300 men, and you've got them, say, six or seven or eight or even ten abreast, uh, and the column is facing toward the enemy, only the front ranks can fire. The rest cannot fire because the rest of the company is in front of them. And that's what the position they put themselves in. Uh, The rebels, when they got near the bridge, halted and fronted, filling the road from the top to the bottom. Now, the road is running parallel to the river, which puts them in, uh, like, the naval formation that's called crossing the T. And that means you have a... the colonists were in a position where almost all of the the militia there could fire at the British regulars. But the British regulars were in a position where they could not fire, only the front of their, the very front of their formation could fire back, right? The fire soon began from a drag, dropping shot on our side when they and the front company fired almost at the same instant, there being nobody to support the front company. The others, not firing, the whole, were forced to quit the bridge and return toward Concord. Some of the grenadiers met them in the road, and they advanced to meet the rebels, who had got to this side of the bridge and on a good height. But seeing the maneuver, they thought proper to retire again over the bridge. The whole then went into Concord, drew up in the town, and waited for the three companies that were gone on, which arrived in about an hour. Four officers of eight who were at the bridge were wounded. Three men were killed. One sergeant and several men were wounded. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so, the when the fire began, the colonists had actually, uh, they fired, and they actually crossed the bridge. But then when they saw the grenadiers coming, they crossed back. But then the grenadiers and the rest of the light infantry of the British regulars 
retreated back into Concord. And then once they did, then uh, uh, several units from the colonist militia crossed over and uh, occupied positions uh, on the Concord side of the bridge. After getting as good conveniences for the wounded as we could, and having done the business we were sent upon, we set out upon our return. Before the whole had quitted the town, we were fired on from houses and behind trees, and before we'd gone a half mile, we were fired on from all sides, but mostly from the rear, where people had hid themselves in houses till we had passed, and then fired. The country was an amazing strong one, full of hills, woods, stone walls, etc., which the rebels did not fail to take advantage of, for they were all lined with people who kept an incessant fire upon us, as we did upon them too, but not with the same advantage. For they were so concealed there was hardly any seeing them. In this way we marched between nine and ten miles, their numbers increasingly from all parts, while ours was reduced by deaths, wounds, and fatigue, and we were totally surrounded. With such an incessant fire, it was impossible to conceive. Our ammunition was likewise near expended. In this critical situation, we perceived the 1st Brigade coming to our assistance. It consisted of the 4th, the 23rd, and 47th Regiments, and the Battalion of Marines with two field pieces, six pounders each. We had been flattered ever since the morning with expectations of the brigade coming out, but at this time had given up all hopes of it as it was so late. I since heard it was owing to a mistake of the orders or the brigade would have been with us two hours sooner. Now, you remember from reading this part of the history that there was a a whole series of errors that caused this, right? Gage wanted this kept secret, so he kept the orders. Uh, he was sending the orders uh, for this only to the heads uh, of the groups that were going. However, Pitcairn was supposed to uh, was supposed to be the uh, one of the commanders in the relief brigade, and uh, Leslie. I did not get the message that he was supposed to do anything uh, that night. He didn't get the message until uh, Gage had sent a runner for him asking him where he was. So by the time they, they got the messages and got everybody to fall out of the barracks and got them on the road marching, they were hours late. As soon as the rebels saw this reinforcement and tasted the field pieces, they retired. And we formed our rising ground and rested ourselves a little while, which was extremely necessary for our men. The men were almost exhausted with fatigue. And uh, and they'd gone a good, they'd, they'd had a pretty good march up to that point. Uh, the the total march for them, for, that, for the run that they took from uh, Big Land and Cambridge March, to uh, crossing back uh, across the uh, uh, Boston Neck was going to be a little over 20-some miles. And uh, by this point, they'd they'd done uh, over 50% of that. So they'd they'd had a pretty good uh, 10-mile quick march. 
because remember they were doing uh, uh, they were marching at the speed of uh, one mile every 16 minutes uh, when they were marching and uh, they'd already marched uh, at this point probably about 12 or 13 miles so they were fatigued although I don't know I'm thinking that uh, that that really doesn't seem to me to be that much uh, that much of a march to fatigue somebody, but but then again, I don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, in about a half hour, we marched again. Some of the brigade taking the flanking parties. We marched pretty quiet for about two miles. They then began to pepper us again from the same sort of places, but at rather a greater distance. We were now obliged to force almost every house in the road, for the rebels had taken possession of them and galled us exceedingly. But they suffered for their temerity, for all that were found in the houses were put to death. And that was uh, that was to be the order for the rest of the day. If the regulars were fired on from a house, then the occupants of the house were put to death and the house was burned. And... Uh, and that is the way it went for the rest of the day. Uh, when we got to Monotomy, there was a very heavy fire. After that, we took the shortcut into the Charlestown Road. Very luckily for us, too, for the rebels, thinking we should endeavor to return by Cambridge, had broken down the bridge and had a great number of men to line the road and to receive us there. However, we threw them and went on to the Charlestown without any great interruption. We got there between 7 and 8 o'clock at night, took possession of the hill above the town, and waited for the boats to carry us over, which came sometime after. The rebels did not choose to follow us to the hill, as they must have fought us on open ground, and that they did not like. Well, not only that, but uh, the narrow strip of land there on Boston Neck <clears throat> was covered by the guns uh, of all of the uh, the British uh, ships of war in the harbor. The pickets of the army were sent over to Charlestown and 200 of the 64th to keep that ground. They threw up a work to, to secure themselves, and we embarked and got home very late in the night. Thus ended this expedition, which from the beginning to the end was as ill-planned and ill-executed as it was possible to be. Had we not idled away three hours on Cambridge March, Waiting for provisions that were not wanted, we should have had no interruption at Lexington. But by our stay, the country people had got intelligence and time to assemble. We should have reached Concord soon after daybreak before they could have heard of us, by which time we should have destroyed more cannon and stores, which they had had time enough to convey away before our arrival. We might also have got easier back and not been so much harassed uh, as they would not have had time to assemble so many people. Even the people of Sable, Salem and Marblehead, above 20 miles off, had intelligence in time to march and meet us on our return. They met us somewhere about monotony, but they lost a good many for their pains. Now, what he's saying is exactly right. Uh the the folks had 
they had lost the three hours waiting for their stores. And if they wouldn't have lost those three hours, then they would have arrived at Concord uh, probably around uh, 4 or 5 in the morning. And there would not have been nearly as much time for the riders that were sent out by Revere, Dawes, and Prescott to have gathered as many people as they did. And like you said, they had enough time that there were folks that uh, from 20 miles away, the the guys from uh, Marblehead and from Salem who had had time to I won't say march because in the reports it talks about them jogging and running 20 miles through the night in order to get there in time to throw themselves in the battle. Now, that's dedication, right? You're going to run. You're going to be on foot. You're going to run 20 miles so that you can throw yourself straight into the fight. But they wouldn't have had time to do that had the, the series of errors not occurred, beginning with the... Uh, the intelligence that Revere and the rest of the mechanics had gotten in Boston about the the raid being launched. Now, that included uh, the Admiralty uh, lowering the boats in broad daylight as they have, after they've been requested not to, all the way to the, uh, the series of errors that led uh, Leslie's Brigade not to make it there in time, because had they had they arrived earlier, and not only that, but had they arrived earlier and been immediately reinforced by Leslie's brigade, the events probably would have turned out a lot different. But that's not what happened. <clears throat> All right. Thus, for a few trifling stores, they're talking about the the food and stuff, the the rations that they got. They were supposed to get there when they went in Cambridge March. Thus, for a few trifling stores, the Grenadiers and Light Infantry had a march of about 50 miles. Oh, that's right. It's going and returning. 50 miles through an enemy's country, and in all human probability, must every man have been cut off if the brigade had not fortunately come to their assistance. When the brigade joined us, there were very few men that had any ammunition left and were so fatigued that we could not keep planking parties out so that we must soon have laid down our arms or been picked off by the rebels at their pleasure. Uh, diary of a British officer. Uh, right, and that was my mistake of only telling you 20 miles. It wasn't. It was, it was 23 or 24 miles back from, from Concord. All right, and then they added that a couple of, uh, of extra miles that they had already, uh, uh, put on a good majority of the folks by going in further and searching Buttricks and uh, uh, Parker's uh, locations, uh, then you get uh, close to 50 miles. And now, okay, 50 miles, that's a, that is a little bit of a road march. Uh, I'll certainly give you that. <laughs> that is from the... That's from the, the English side of the uh, of the battle and uh, and it's pretty uh, it's pretty 
but it's pretty telling on some of the stuff that that they were saying, that the English were saying. Uh, All right, now I'm going to read you. Read you now the where is it here? Okay. This is from the well Reverend William Gordon of Roxbury to a gentleman in England. They wrote this uh on the 17th of May. This is a month later. He says, My dear sir, on the first of the night, when it was very dark, the detachment consisting of all of the grenadiers and light infantry, the file of the army, to the amount of 800 or better officers included, the companies having been filled up, and several of the inimical, tortified natives repaired to the boats and got them, got into them just as the moon rose. They crossed the water, landed on Cambridge side, took through a private way to avoid discovery and therefore had to go through some places up to their thighs in water. They made a quick march of it to Lexington, about 13 miles from Charlestown, and got there by half an hour after four. Here I must pause again to point to you that in the morning of the 19th, before we had breakfasted between eight and nine, the whole neighborhood was in alarm. The Minutemen, so called from their having agreed to turn out at a minute's warning, were collecting together. We had to count that the regulars had killed six of our men at Lexington. The country was in an uproar. Another detachment was coming out of Boston, and I was desired to take care of myself and partner. Soon after the affair, knowing what untruths are propagated by each party in matters of this nature, I concluded that I would ride to Concord, inquire for myself, and not rest upon the depositions that might be taken by others. Accordingly, I went last week. Before Major Pitcairn arrived at Lexington, signal guns had been fired, and the bells had been rung to give the alarm. But let not the sound of bells lead you to think of a ring of bells like what you hear in England. For they are only small-sized bells, one in a parish, just sufficient to notify to the people the time for attending worship, etc. Lexington being alarmed, the training band or militia, and the alarm men, consisting of the aged and others exempted from turning out, excepting upon an alarm, repaired in general to the common, close in with the meeting house, the usual place of parade, and there were present when the roll was called, over about 130 of both, as I was told by Mr. Daniel Harrington, clerk to the company, who further said that the night being chilly, so as to make it uncomfortable being upon the parade, they, having received no certain intelligence of the regulars being upon their march and being waiting for the same, the men were dismissed to appear again at the beat of drum. Some who lived near went home, others to the public house at the corner of the common. Upon information being received about half after about half an hour that the troops were not far off, the remains of the company who were at hand collected together 
to the amount of about 60 or 70. By the time the regulars appeared, but were chiefly in a confused state, only a few of them being drawn up with accounts for other witnesses making the number less, about 30. So he's saying that uh, that that they were saying that they were between 60 or 70 that had gathered together, but the but there was another number that other witnesses claimed making the band of about 30, the group that were present. Uh, there were a lot of spectators around, which is why what led to the confusion of the number of folks that being gathered together. Uh, remember Lieutenant Barker's numbers. He's saying two to 300 people had gathered. Uh, here, they're saying there were about 40 or more spectators that didn't have any arms. So that could bring the total from between 70 to, uh, say, 110, 120. Uh, but they weren't, you know, they weren't standing in rows of 10 to be counted. So, and it was uh, 5 o'clock in the morning, which means it was still a good, it was fairly dark, too, at the time, that uh, there could have been a lot of confusion about the number of folks that were gathered together there at that time. <clears throat> the simple truth I take to be this, which I received from one of the prisoners at Concord in free conversation. One, James Marr, a native of Aberdeen in Scotland, they were met by three men on horseback before they got to the meeting house a good way off. An officer bid them to stop, to which he was answered, You had better turn back, for you shall receive, you shall not enter the town. When the three persons rode back again, and at some distance one of them offered to fire, but the piece flashed in the pan without going off. I asked Marr whether he could tell if the piece was designed at the soldiers or to give an alarm. He could not say which. The said Mar further declared that when they and the others were advanced, Major Pitcairn said to the Lexington Company, which, by the way, was the only one there, stop, you rebels. And he supposed that the design was to take away their arms but upon seeing the regulars, they dispersed, and a firing commenced. But who fired first, he could not say. I shall not trouble you with more particulars, but give you the substance as it lies in my own mind, collected from the persons whom I examined for my own satisfaction. The Lexington Company, upon seeing the troops and being of themselves so unequal a match for them, were deliberating for a few moments what they should do when several dispersing of their own heads. The captain soon ordered the rest to disperse for their own safety. Before the order was given, three or four of the regular officers, seeing the company as they rode, as they came up on the rising ground on this side of the meeting, rode forward one or more around the meeting house, leaving it on the right hand, and so came upon them that way. Upon coming up, one cried out, You damned rebels, lay down your arms. Another, Stop, you rebels. A third, Disperse, you rebels, etc. Major Pitcairn, I suppose, thinking himself justly by, justified by parliamentary authority, 
to consider them as rebels, perceiving that they did not actually lay down their arms, observing that the generality were getting off while a few continued in their military position and apprehending there could be no great hurt in killing a few such Yankees, which might probably, according to the notions that had been instilled in him by the Tory party of the Americans being poltrons, end all the contest, gave the command to fire, then fired his own pistol, and so set the whole affair going. <clears throat> all right, now remember, this is, this is from, as he told you earlier, this is from his own mind that he's saying this, from, from the facts that he's gotten, but, but, but it's not what happened, right? He said, uh, I shall not trouble you with more particulars, but give you the substance as it lies in my own mind, collected from the persons whom I examined for my own satisfaction. Now, when he gets down and he starts talking about how it happened, that this is his supposition. This isn't uh this is not him reading from a deposition. This is his supposition on how it happened. Because uh we know from the depositions taken on both sides that no one, no uh, British regular, nor any of the uh, colonists of the militia there, heard Major Pitcairn give a command to fire. He himself testified, and, he was, and Pitcairn was an honorable man. He may have wanted to give a command to fire, and I'm not saying that he would not have been happy to shoot every one of them there. Uh, I'm just saying that he testified that he didn't fire, and and nobody else could testify that he did. Uh, I think what is much closer to being the truth is <clears throat> Dick Karen testified that he, when he wrote up, uh, he had uh, he had a fairly large number of soldiers that were there at his command, and the number of the uh, uh, of the folks in the training that band there who had uh, had mustered were probably only about thirty or so men there. He said that he had ordered his man, men to surround them, and while he was while he was giving that order, he was telling them, "Do not fire." And he said he repeated it several times: "Surround them, men. Surround them. Do not fire. Do not fire. Surround them." Now, I have to tell you that that's not the best way of doing things, right? That's one of the reasons that we don't use uh, the the word load when we're talking about prepping magazines. It's one of the reasons that we don't use the word fire unless we are at the in the middle of a course of fire getting ready to say it. Because fire is one of those words that because of its composition that it's uh it's easy to hear fire uh better than it is to hear surround. Better, easier to understand fire than surround. So, if you are in a group, if you're standing in the middle of a couple of hundred uh, soldiers facing each other, and there's a great clamoring going on, and there's drums being drummed, and they said the other report said that the British regulars there, who were mustering uh, and coming up in the ranks, were yelling huzzah as they were coming up. I'm sure it is very easy to mistake do not fire 
for fire. Because the main thing you're going to hear is going to be the fire. You're standing there with your muskets facing what you consider to be armed rebels, and you hear the word fire, then what's the logic? What is your logical conclusion, right? There's probably not in your mind, anyway, as a British regular there, there's probably not a lot of, any, a lot of other good reasons to hear the word fire. Uh, not like you're expecting to hear the word do not fire or uh, be careful so that you don't fire or anything like that. If you hear the word fire, the only thing it's going to mean is fire, defend yourselves, fire, shoot the rebels. And that's what they heard and that's what they did. Now, I don't remember any testimony <clears throat> from anybody saying that they heard that they saw Pitcairn fire his pistol. There was testimony from several folks saying that they saw a mounted officer fire a pistol. But I don't believe I I don't believe I've ever read anywhere that the pistol that, that anybody placing Pitcairn's name with the pistol. So so that I don't know. But like I said, this is this is his rep his, his supposition. This isn't uh exact facts of the case. This is this is what he has determined to be the most probable case. Uh okay, this is uh <clears throat> the next thing I'm gonna read here is uh from Jonas Clark. Okay. And I believe that uh I believe that's information I'm about to read you. I think this is from uh from during one of his sermons. I think that he I think this is how he described what happened into the congregation. Between <clears throat> uh, the hours of twelve and one on the morning of the nineteenth of April we received intelligence by express from the Honorable Joseph Warren Esquire at Boston. The large body of the King's troops, supposed to be a brigade of about twelve or 1,500, were embarked in boats from Boston and gone over to land on Lechmere's Point in Cambridge, and that it was shrewdly suspected that they were ordered to deceive and destroy the stores belonging to the colony which were then deposited at Concord. <clears throat> upon this intelligence, as also upon information of the conduct of the officers as above mentioned, the militia of this town were alarmed and ordered to meet on the usual place of parade, not with any design of commencing hostilities upon the king's troops, but to consult what might be done for our own and the people's safety and also to be ready for whatever service Providence might call us out to. Upon this alarming occasion, in case overt acts of violence or open hostilities should be committed by this mercenary band of armed and bloodthirsty oppressors. Okay. Well, and that that is pretty much flat out what they did. Uh, they got their folks together, and they were... They were meeting together. Uh, nobody, nobody had any orders 
whatsoever to engage British regulars. And, and as a matter of fact, they had express orders not to fire upon the British regular troops. All right? Their orders were do not fire. Do not fire upon the troops. <clears throat> and certainly, uh, at, a, at, a, at another level, they had been told, do not fire the first shots, right? Now, nobody's going to stand there and just receive uh, volleys of ball, but you cannot fire the first shot. If you fire the first shot, then you are a rebel. And firing the first shot opens the door to justification of anything else that would follow this, uh, of just about anything else that the British regulars would do could be justified by the fact that they had been fired upon by rebels. So Parker's men who were gathering there at Lexington were under orders, as were as were all of the colonists everywhere. This is as I told you before, that the events of April nineteenth, seventeen seventy five were not it was not the the completely spontaneous uh, events that uh, were sometimes led to believe. There had been a great amount of discussion, and not just uh, for a little while, but for a, a good bit of time, for a couple of for a couple of years, uh, if not more. Folks had been discussing what they would do, how what they would do if something happened. And one of the things that everybody knew you couldn't do was to fire upon the king's troops. This would make you a rebel. And subject to just about anything that happened after that, it would it would justify anything that the, the troops did. So the people knew that they couldn't fire the first shot. <clears throat> But certainly they had talked about what they were going to do if something happened. They talked about how they would uh, how they would bring the alarm up to their neighbors and how they would alarm the other uh, residents of the colony, how they would actually even alarm the other colonies, uh, which could be days if not months away uh, by warning. <clears throat> All of this had been talked about. They'd even they'd even talked about ways to resupply men in the field if something had happened. And uh, and so the folks gathered in Lexington were there as uh, as mainly just a show of them not being happy with what was going on. Now they. They were, of course, there is the secondary thing, which is if if by chance it did come to blows, then they wanted to have their men ready. All the men of the colony wanted to be ready for that. And they had been practicing being ready for that uh, ever since the very first uh, powder alarm. So they wanted to be ready for that, but they were not, uh, they were not standing there in order to be... Uh, engage in the first battle, and uh, and certainly 
when they saw that uh, there was only 30 or 40 of the guys there lined up, <laughs> several of them did turn to Parker and say, look, we're, what can we do? There are so few of us. And, and he, he gave the order to disperse and, uh, and on both sides, the description was, uh, and so they dispersed, but not so quick as they might have. Right? So that means they were dispersing, but they weren't, uh, they weren't doing it as quickly as I'm sure that Pit Care would like them to do. I'm sure that they were dispersing, uh, they were making a point of it. Yeah, we're leaving, but, uh, but we're leaving in a manner to show you we're unhappy about it. And they didn't. No one laid down their arms when they, because that was it was agreed upon that that was one of the first commands was lay down your arms, lay down your arms and disperse. And as far as any accounts of the events of that day and of that location are concerned, that nobody laid down their arms. Nobody, nobody put their uh, their firearms on the ground and and held up their hands. None of them did that. Although they did begin to disperse. It's also said that some of them <clears throat> didn't hear the commanders to disperse. Like I said, there was a lot of noise going on. There was the drum. The drum was beating uh, a formation roll and then you have the the British regulars who were rushing into formation, and as they were rushing into formation, they were yelling "Huzzah!" And uh, uh, I don't know how to describe this other than if you've ever been uh, if you've ever been involved in like a military riot control or or something like that, you've got the stomp and drag thing that uh, folks are doing. And that's you know what you're you're trying to make sure you don't trip because you're all geared up and you got bayonets out and everything and, and you've got one foot that's lifting up and stomping down and you're dragging the other foot up to meet it. That way your feet are never crossing. You just got one foot going forward and the other's dragging up to meet it. And you're just edging forward like that with your bayonet. Well, they're, I'm sure they were doing quite close to the same thing. But at the same time, they're probably yelling huzzah on the drop of the of the forward foot each time it drops because that's normally what what a lot of ride control troops do. As they're stomping that foot, they're all making some type of a noise at the same time. It's, it's, it's to help keep cadence so that everybody is making their step at the same time to make sure the line stays a straight line so you don't have any breaks in the line that the riders can get through. And also to intimidate the riders. So all the noise is going on. Parker tells the folks to disperse, but not everyone hears. And at that time, somewhere around is fired. And then at the same time, because both sides seem to agree that it wasn't just a single round, that there were several rounds fired right around the same time. So somewhere around is fired. And I think that one of the rounds may have been from uh, over near the uh, uh, the tavern, uh, near a, a, 
a rock, a stone wall in the tavern. And then one or more shots were fired, <clears throat> they believed, by a, a British regular officer on horseback. Now, the truth is probably that both of those things happened. <clears throat> there was probably a round fired by either uh, accidentally or on purpose uh, to start something by somebody over by the tavern. I wouldn't put it past someone who had been drinking for a while over the tavern to fire a musket either accidentally or on purpose. And certainly, uh, we've all probably experienced those guys that uh, that when situations are tense, they're not there in the uh, at the front of the where the fight is with their fist ball. They may throw a rock or something uh, to get the ball started and then take off running. Could have been somebody like that. It could have been the fact that that uh, the flintlocks were known to go off uh, fairly often without a whole lot of help. That's one of the reasons that after the events at Lexington, uh, Schmidt had his guys fire a victory volley. It wasn't just for victory. It was needed to make sure that all of the muskets were cleared, that they weren't marching down the road with the with loaded firearms that could easily go off because there are plenty of accounts of muskets going off uh, when they weren't supposed to during this time period. So it could have been it could have been anything. Nobody as far as I know, nobody has ever uh, has ever taken credit for it. Nobody has ever been able to put a name to anyone's face or even actually say for one hundred percent certainty that somebody did fire. But they think that somebody fired a long gun over by the tavern, over by the stone wall of the tavern. And then there are several reports also of folks uh, testifying that there was a British officer on horseback that fired a pistol. So probably both of those things happened. That, along with Pitcairn, who was yelling, do not fire, do not fire, and the fact that even though the, the British regulars were part of the most feared army on the face of the planet and the troops were uh, were professional, full-time soldiers and that they did a lot of training, none of the, or, or at least the, the majority of the troops of the British regulars in ranks that day were not veterans. Uh, the majority of them had not been in a shooting war before. And I'll tell you that there's a there's a big difference between never having been in a shooting war and having been in one, all right? There's a big difference, at least mentally. So while these guys were professional soldiers, they were still green soldiers. And anytime you have 
a group or two groups of folks facing each other, and they're armed. I'm telling you right now, I'd much rather have experienced soldiers that I was, even that I was facing, than inexperienced, because experienced soldiers are much less likely to get freaked out and shoot without provocation than green troops are. Green troops are nervous, and they're and they don't know what to expect. They don't know how something's going to happen or what's going to happen, and and they're nervous, and they're uh, it's just not a good situation. If you have two groups of folks standing off, facing off, and they both groups have firearms, and and nobody's done this before, then that's a recipe for disaster. It's very easy for a mistake to happen. That's even that's exactly what happened. There's some several mistakes occurred. <clears throat> which led to the British regulars firing a volley into the the folks that had assembled there uh, at Lexington. Then uh, they began to reload and fire indiscriminately, and, uh, and they continued to do so until uh, Smith got them to stop shooting, and by all accounts, it was it was hard to get them to stop because they were marching off in all directions, uh, shooting and and trying to stab uh, bayonet the uh, the prisoners. Uh, so uh, so Smith finally got them to uh, to settle down by by having a drum roll and getting them back into formation. Uh, all right, so uh, hold on one second. I'm going to I'm going to tell uh tell Law Dog uh if he can call in Law Dog, can you call into the show? Okay. You need a number? All right. Our number is 347 308 Eight seven nine zero. Eight seven nine zero. Uh-huh. Yeah, just call in and I'll get uh, Sam to to bring you right on. Uh, thank you. Okay, that's a log dog, Daniel Plunkett. <clears throat> he's going to call in because he's going to help ramrod the the events. <clears throat> This weekend, I'd ask him to call in because I'd like to give him, a, a, make sure that he gives you guys a, uh, uh, you know, an up to the minute uh, rundown here on uh, the things that are going on. So I'll bring him on in just a second. <clears throat> anyway, that's uh, that's how the events played out there at Lexington. Now we know that there is also uh, there are also a lot of other things going on besides just the. The events were playing out right there on the uh, on the green. Uh, we know that another of the the troops, one of the colonists, had raced to the uh, uh, to the uh, the meeting house there, and he'd been pursued by several soldiers. And the soldiers were were shooting at people. Uh, I'm sure they were shooting at people even that weren't armed because a lot of the people were, were, had taken off running in all directions. 
this guy had taken, this soldier had run to the meeting house, they'd run upstairs, and he, I'm sure that he thought he was being pursued, which he probably was, and he went upstairs to where they had the, the town's powder supply, and he took his musket and stuck the barrel of his musket, I mean, yeah, stuck the barrel of his musket into a barrel of powder. And in his, he'd already made up that made up his mind that if they continued to pursue him upstairs into the building, that he was going to fire his musket into that powder. And there were quite a few barrels there. I'm sure that would have made for a great uh, finale for the events right there. Because if he would have set off uh, uh, three or four hundred pounds of powder there in the meeting house, that would have uh, that sure would have uh, Across the T on the events that were being handled there. But as the troops were racing uh, over to the meeting house to follow him up the stairs, they apparently heard the drums, uh, the formation drums, and stopped and went back. So that saved his life, and I'm sure it saved the life, I'm sure it saved the life of a lot of folks on both sides because uh, three or four hundred pounds of gunpowder really doesn't care who it sends uh, uh, chunks of wood and steel flying into. But there were a lot of things going on uh, at that time period. Now, we know, too, that just before the confrontation, Paul Revere himself had been on the green because uh, uh, some of the the documents concerning uh, the the leadership uh, of the of the folks that were behind this, of the Committee of Safety and, and Correspondence, the documents had been upstairs in one of the offices, and uh, Revere and his buddy had gone over, grabbed the, the big uh, footlocker, the, the chest, and drug it to uh, uh, to safety, and on their way they had to cross the the green. So they had just gotten through the green whenever uh, whenever these events occurred. So there was a lot of stuff going on uh, right at that time. Now, once Smith had got them all back together, he he got everybody back into formation, and he knew that this wasn't a great uh, a great thing that had happened because he he was under orders not to to have something like this happen. Gage didn't want something like this to happen. He wanted to have a peaceful uh run out to Concord, a have a peaceful peaceful confiscation of uh of the powder and any armed stuff and bring it back. <clears throat> and that's not what happened. There had already been a, a, a shooting engagement there at Lexington before they were even before they even made it to Concord. Leslie got his guys. Uh, I mean, uh, Smith got his guys back in formation and marched them back out to the road where the rest of the uh, uh, the contingent of troops were. <clears throat> had everybody fire their had the victory volley and get three huzzas, and they began their march. Now, before he did that, he had a meeting with his officers. And to let them know where they were, where their destination was, because until then, 
uh, only Pitcairn and Smith knew where they were headed. The rest of the office, nobody else knew where they were going or what their orders were. So he had a meeting with his officers to let them know, and the majority of the officers were warning him away from continuing the mission. The majority of the officers told him, let's, let's, let's go, let's go back, because they're certainly now all going to be alarmed, and they're going to know that something's up, that something's going on. And, uh, and Smith listened to their advice, but at the same time, he told them that uh, that's not what they were going to do because they had their orders. So they were going to continue on to uh, uh, they were going to continue on to Concord and continue on with their mission. Uh, well, one second. Write one another number. Okay. And that's what they did. Now, the guys at, uh, the guys at Concord knew they were coming. They knew that, uh, that the folks were coming from Lexington. They had several riders that had, uh, that had let them know that the troops were coming. They'd already been warned. Uh, and then they had some guys that there were guys on horseback. They were sitting horseback watching the events occur. When the volleys were fired there at Lexington, the initial volleys were fired by the uh, the regulars, and the uh, the guys on horseback, one of the guys on horseback, his horse jolted and took off. And when it did, he just kept on going. He didn't slow down. He kept on going and uh, and rode to Concord to tell him what had happened. And they asked him, when he got there, they, they told him about the events that, that had occurred. He told him they had seen the firing. They asked him, do you think that they were using ball? And he said, I don't know, but I think that they were. And now this may seem like a strange thing for somebody to ask, is if you got shot at, do you think they were using real bullets? Because what else would they use? And one the answer was that they quite often used uh, simply powder charges as warnings or as uh, to make a statement. And a statement would be something like, uh, look, we're we're here. We've got a whole bunch of firearms. We could shoot at you if we wanted to, uh, but we're not. We're going to. Uh, we're just going to fire this charge and uh, <laughs> as a warning. But he thought that they that they were actually shooting ball, and they, of course they were. All right, we're going to take a pause here because I'd like to bring on uh, Law Dog Dan Plunkett because Dan is. Uh, is ramrodding uh, the events for this weekend, and I want to bring him on the show and let him uh, let you guys know if there's any uh, any changes or anything special that's going on, any last minute things that he needs, and also to give you a rundown of how the uh, the thing is going to run. So, 
Okay. So let me see. Am I got uh got the number here? Okay. Okay, Dan, can you hear me? Dan, can you hear me? I'm trying to I'm trying to bring him onto I'm trying to open the mic but it's uh it's acting like it's not like it's not going to submit to my authority. Dan, can you hear me now? Well, I'm going to keep trying, and uh, and if you uh, if you can hear me, Dan, I'm just going to I'm going to I've, I've already keyed your mic, but uh, I told you we're having we're we're having troubles with uh, blog talk tonight, and blog talk has already said they already tried to warn us off before we started the show, which was. Uh, don't do the show tonight because we're having troubles. But we we were so close to to go ahead and running, we just went ahead and and ran it. But uh, but not all of our stuff is working right. All right, I'm sure that's happened to everybody tonight at Blog Talk. We'll keep trying. Dan, don't leave because I see that you're there, and uh, and I have pressed the magic button to open your mic, and now I'm just waiting for it to open. It's just uh, it's just not responding. Uh, it took a, a good uh, almost two hours to get the show loaded tonight because uh, nothing that uh, we were doing was uh, working as far as uh, none of the the blog talk stuff was obeying our commands or anything else. So. <clears throat> uh, so, uh, I'll keep trying here, Dan. So, like I said, don't hang up. I'll keep trying. I'll get you. Uh, I'll get this on in a minute if it will work. And uh, until then, I'm trying to uh, relog back in here to the to the switchboard and see if I can't get uh, get it to obey my commands. Until then, what I'll do is I'll just continue to tell you that. Uh, Oh great! Now it's saying that uh, that there is no web server that there there that we're not connected to the Blog Talk web server anymore. So, so now I can't see anything. I can't see. Uh, I can see no switchboard, no Blog Talk stuff, or anything. Okay. So I'm kind of flying blind here, uh, but I'm just going to continue to to talk about the events, and then if I get a uh, if I get a screen on, then uh, I will bring Daniel on, and if I don't, I guess I won't. If I don't get uh, if we don't get something on the next uh the next couple of minutes here, Daniel maybe uh maybe I'll just get you to call me on my cell phone. I'll put it on speaker and hold it close to the hold it close to the uh, phone that I'm using here. 
because I don't want to I want to make everybody wait for blog talk and uh uh we've only got uh, 20 minutes left so if it doesn't uh if you don't get us uh if you don't get anything from us in the next uh, 3 minutes Dan go ahead and call me back on my cell and uh <clears throat> we'll just do a uh we'll just do a speaker phone uh question and answer here Okay, so the folks then knew that Smith and the rest of his guys were coming. And the group in Concord was a bit different than the group in Lexington. Lexington had the 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 older style, the original style of militia, and that was they were it was all together in one group called training band. Uh, everybody was together in the one group. All the all the different folks because they didn't have that large of a group. And uh, Concord was a bit different. Concord had their groups split up into uh, into the the three sections, the three main sections that uh, that you would find in some of the more in some of the uh, the larger. Towns that means they would have their they would have their young men uh, the men say from sixteen to maybe twenty years of age uh, most of them were unmarried and good health good shape and stuff those guys were in the Minutemen the guys that could uh, jump out of their beds uh, pull on a pair of pants and their moccasins and grab their muskets and take off but they didn't have to they didn't have a lot of worrying about uh, uh, about kids and 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 other stuff. They they could jump in jump in there and take off and uh, take off running because they were young and uh, uh, those guys were the the minute men ready to take off in uh, a minute's notice. <clears throat> the next group of folks was the the folks that were in the uh, the main body of the militia and these were the the folks uh, who were. Uh, say in their twenties until I believe the, the cutoff was around uh, somewhere in the mid uh, mid forties or so, and those were the the main body of the militia. And then you had the older gentlemen that uh, that were a little bit older and uh, from the forties or so on up that were the alarmless folks. And uh, so what would normally happen or what the plans were, if uh, if you had to race out after. Uh, uh, if you had to race to another town to help defend it from a uh, marauding band of uh, Indians or uh, French soldiers, the militia, the Minutemen would take off uh, as the first section of the militia and uh, and hopefully get to the town quick enough to to provide aid. Well, the rest of the group, the, the main body of the militia, uh, were en route. And uh, then the older group, the alarmless folks, would stay on at the town to provide security and uh, defense of the town uh, while the uh, the Minutemen and the militia, the, the rest of the main body, were away. When they got news that uh, Smith and his group were on the way, they had to decide what their response was going to be. And uh, And... 
it might seem strange that with a, a what you would consider to be a body of troops with commanders and stuff, that there would be a lot of discussion about it, that somebody, whoever's in charge, would just say, look, I'm in charge, and here's what I think we're going to do. But you can't do that in a in a civilian-style militia because it's not made up of a whole bunch of people you don't know. It is it's everybody you do know. It's your family, your brothers and your uncles and your fathers and sons and and the doctors of the town and the lawyers and everything else. And uh, instead, they have a discussion on what they should do, what their response should be to the news that Smith and his brigade were marching against Concord. And, uh, of course, you you have a lot of varied opinions. Uh, you probably have as many varied opinions as you have folks that give them uh, about what they should do. And certainly a lot of the younger men uh, wanted, they took this as an insult, and they thought that uh, they should, they should march out and meet Smith and fight him on the road in front of town and stop him before he ever got into town, which uh, it might seem like a good idea, but there's several flaws in it, one of the first of which is what are you going to stop them from doing? Uh, If you go out and start shooting at somebody, then you are a rebel. So you don't know for a fact what has happened in Lexington or the reasons why it happened. So going out and just starting to shoot at somebody is not a good idea. And if you're not going to shoot at them, then what are you going to be doing out there on the road? Certainly, you've already heard that uh, uh, that the numbers that were told to the guys in Concord, upwards of 1,500 men, upwards of 12 to 1,500 men. Now we know that it was closer to 900, but they're saying upwards of 12 to 1,500 men. If you send out... Uh, 40 to 60 men uh, to block at a road from upwards of 12 to 1,500 men. It's not going to work out very good. So, but they couldn't stop them. They couldn't forbid them because that's what they wanted to do. So that's what they did. They took off and they set up on the road outside of Concord, between Concord and Lexington. And uh, I'm not sure if they knew exactly what they were going to do either because this was going to be a first for everybody. And they set up out there because there were three, there were three main thoughts in response to Smith's brigade coming. One was to go out and meet them. The other was to remain in Concord and defend the city of Concord from Smith. And the third was to retreat out of the town and and thereby prevent confrontation. And uh, and. Certainly, there were pros and cons to each of these. You fight them on the road away from town, then that's good. You could uh, possibly prevent them from reaching the town and uh, and uh, send them back to Boston. That didn't seem very likely. Uh, the the troops that were coming, as we discussed earlier, were were professional, hardcore troops and. Uh, and they were not likely to be stopped by uh, by a small group of folks. And uh, okay, I'm sending uh, I'm sending a message to Daniel, telling you to go ahead and give me a call right now if you can on my cell phone. 
So it doesn't look like we're going to get anything back from uh, anything back from Blog Talk. I'm not. I'm. I don't even know for a fact that I'm going out anymore. Uh, I hope that I am, but I don't know for a fact that I am. So I'm asking. I'm. Uh, I sent a message to you. Oh, here he is, right here. Daniel. Yes, sir. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing okay. Could you hear me a while ago when uh, when you were wait when you were waiting in line? Yes. Okay, so I'm still going out over the air. Daniel. Yes. Okay. I just didn't know if uh, if Blog Talk had dropped me too, or if they were just not allowing me to answer the phones, or what. Now, so you know that uh, I couldn't even I couldn't uh, I couldn't use the switchboard anymore to to get it to answer your call. So so this is what we're doing instead. I've got you on speakerphone. And what I'd like you to do, if you would, please, is uh, is to let folks know uh, any last-minute details that they have for this weekend and uh, if there's any special things that you need from anybody anywhere. And then also the, uh, the procedures that everybody's going to use for their uh, – Nationwide Volley. And and welcome to the show, Daniel. <laughs> okay. Um, the weekend is looking good. We've got more than 100 events that will um, run the April 2021 weekend, and that's part of almost 150 events that we had uh, throughout Patriots Month in April. Uh, I got news today that the uh, State Senate of Alabama issued a resolution declaring this Patriots Month in Alabama and uh, specifically recognizing this weekend, uh, um, this Patriots Weekend. So that was a, a, a great event uh, that, that that state is recognizing our history and heritage and all done by an Appleseed volunteer uh, out of the Mobile area. So she's commended for her uh, time. Well, congratulations to the folks in Alabama, and thank you for the for the work that uh, that they put in there. And and my thanks to Alabama for being uh, for for being the, as far as I know, the only uh, state to issue anything like that. That's great. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty pretty uh, cool. I just trying to put that this afternoon. So the weekend is up well. Um, in the ship boxes, uh, ship bosses received um, full-size red coat toilets that can be used for the volley if they've got access to a KG range. If not, those can be used, um, you know, either a future shoot or go ahead and put them out there at 25 meters. You know, a lot of the uh, events on April 19th. Certainly took place at, at very close distances at, at musket range. Uh, we think about our rifles and our ability to reach out to 400, 600 yards, and a lot of the skirmishing of 1775 was done at much closer ranges, so shoot bosses shouldn't hesitate to go and put that full size red coat out there. Right, I think that's what we're going to do. We'll have the, uh, the full size red coat for the volleys. Good. And those will happen at 4 o'clock Eastern, so 3 o'clock for a good chunk of the country, the central time zone. 
and then continuing out at 1 o'clock out there in California. And so that'll be done simultaneously. And if the ship bosses, particularly this week, of course, you're always supposed to turn in your um, IAAR by the Thursday following a shoot, but this time, I'd like to beg everyone to turn in even quicker. Let us know how many people shot that volley. There was talk this morning of of some sort of Guinness record for the biggest simultaneous uh, uh, volley of shooting. I don't know if we'll get this record or if we even qualify, uh, but it'll be great to know how many great Americans were out there this weekend um, recognizing those who were killed in action 238 years ago tomorrow. Well, yeah, we should have, uh, let's see, if you, even if you only had uh, 10 people, average at an event, 100 events, you got got 1,000 folks shooting simultaneously, and they're going to be shooting, uh, what's your total round count that you'd like everybody to shoot? I think that uh, the, the, as we post it up on the rally, John are 13, so it's just like you're shooting uh, you know, a red coat target below 13. And then the, you know, Louisiana, at least, we call the 14th thing. That is the last soldier or sailor or marine to have died in combat from the Bayou State. We'll call that name. And there won't be any shots um, after that name because everybody will be out after the 13th Revolutionary War a hero. Uh, but we'll just uh, let that last thing hang there in silence to remind us all that what was begun in 15,000 rounds fired uh, with a minimum of 10 people on the line across the nation. It's pretty incredible. Right. So, That's pretty cool. So I think we have a good chance of making it because I don't know any – I was saying earlier, I don't know anywhere uh, anybody's ever done anything like this before to begin with. Nobody honors uh, the folks on – the April 19th event, like we do. Now, there are folks that are out that are honoring it, and, of course, we'll have some celebratory uh, volleys by folks like the Sons of the American Revolution, uh, you know, doing the stuff that they're doing. I know that they have events scheduled across the nation because I've tried before to get uh, them to show up at Appleseed events, and a lot of them were already having their own events. So so we're going to have certainly by far the largest uh ever gathering, and I don't know that anybody's ever has ever fired a simultaneous volley across the United States, so I don't see why we couldn't get it, although I don't know how you would, uh, you know, how you would have folks that could witness all of it. Well, you know, I'm not sure that the Guinness keeps such a record, but we'll all know what we've been a part of, and we'll publish it out there on the website and make certain that, that uh, we advertise it and, and tell people and, you know, I know you're not one for caring about whether it's done in an official way. The fact is, we'll get it done. Absolutely. And that's for most of us. Absolutely. One of the things, Scott, I wanted to, to tell people is that uh, the 
So I'd like to remind everybody to start commemorating April 18th tomorrow, on April 18th, and at your office, at the grocery store, at your child's school, uh, churches, meetings, wherever you may be tomorrow, ask people a simple question. Today is the 238th anniversary of Warland. And, and I started this today at my office. And I work with some really smart people. And, you know, they, they sat and they struggled. And I started it out a little harder than that, I think. Today's the anniversary of what? And they didn't know. There was one guy that had been to Apple Street before, and, and he just kind of smiled to himself because he knew the answer. But the others, it was only when I said 238 years ago that they started to think. And then one of them shouted out, Paul over here. And boy, the discussion that got started was just invaluable. And I got to tell you, I had a whole room full of people who now are focused on what tomorrow is. And it didn't take me, I didn't have to go find a box of ammunition. I didn't have to go find a range. I didn't have to come there, and it didn't cost me anything at all. But simply by asking that question, ask over lunch tomorrow in your cafeteria, at coffee breaks, wherever you are, Ask people that question. Today is the 238th anniversary of what incredible event. And then just throw that answer out and watch the spark on. It's quick, it's simple, it's easy, and it starts to wake people up. Sometimes it doesn't take much, but that little spark, that little snap, uh, will start to start to sound it in people. And then tell them where you're going to be this weekend, and maybe you'll get a few more people out of the line. And we can get that number up to maybe 15,000 shots. Wow. Wow, that sounds great. Well, the the promotions for the uh, for the upcoming event, for this event, uh, hopefully they're all done now. But what you just mentioned, you can put the seed in at any time. And just because somebody can't make it this weekend, it's still no reason that you can't tell them tomorrow, like you said at your office, tell them what they're what they're going to miss, and let them know that it's going to happen again in 2014, and uh, and that uh, if they can't make it this weekend, they should put they've got a whole year now to put this on the calendar for themselves. That's right, or they can come out to an event in May or June or July, and and then they can start asking the question um, next year. You know, 100 shits this year, why can't we have 200 next year? Exactly. And make sure April 18th falls on a weekend. Boy, uh, you know, Fred asked me uh, this year if I would, would shoot boss the, the nationwide event. And then I hadn't agreed to that for more than about, it seemed like an hour, and he asked me if I'd shoot boss for next year. And I said, well, if I next year, take care of next year. But I'm already thinking about it. <laughs>
are better at you than I do, and not just like them. You know, use your program as a, as a way to get those thoughts flowing. Right. Hey, oh, oh. All right, I, I, I was just trying to see. I couldn't tell. Usually, uh, Blog Talk gives us uh, warnings when they are uh, when they are uh, when we're getting ready to lose the on-air feed. But they didn't say anything tonight, and uh, I didn't know if they were if we were going to to lose it or not. Um, I asked. I was asking the guys on here, but they're on the phone feed with us, so they're listening on the phone. So we may have lost the. Uh, we may have lost the on-air feed, but that just means that uh, the people that are listening to the show live right now are not able to hear what we're saying. However, the majority of listens comes through in the archives, so they'll hear everything we said, even if we talk for another hour. Uh, they'll still hear. They'll still hear what we say. So there's no rush. But uh, is there anything else that you wanted to get out to folks uh, that you want to get into the read into the record? Just how free. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.